How are you, Ashley? I'm great. I got my licorice tea. Have you had licorice tea before? Well, at least it's not some nut juice latte. <laughs> Almond milk latte. That's my usual. Um, I'm super excited to be here today because as soon as I saw this article going crazy all over Facebook about pig heart transplants into a human being, I think I texted you or emailed you so fast. I was like, oh my gosh, we got to talk about this. I want to do a podcast about this right now. And you're like, okay, fine. Oh, you twist my arm. Um, well, it is pretty cool, isn't it? It's super cool. You and know, we have a saying in the pig business, right? We use everything but the squeal. <laughs> Do you think this guy's going to oink when they woke him we up? We can only hope. <laughs> he has an urge to root all of a sudden. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't think it works that way, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> it is kind of funny. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim Lowe. And I'm Dr. Ashley Mytek. And welcome to The Round Barn. about this um if i go out we all understand heart transplants and organ transplants in general in people that sometimes their organ systems fail and that's the last that's the only thing you you have left to do is to transplant the organ um we've got, we just call it getting a fresh part getting a fresh part yeah go to yeah. the auto part is auto parks just say whatever you need a it's like going to napa anymore it's like going to napa okay. right you know okay. we get fresh knees and fresh arm or fresh hips and shoulders and yeah you need a kidney liver whatever we got it no okay. problem yep so we got to switch out an organ for this patient human patient it was a heart that needed to be switched out so we have pigs here on campus right yep a few um could you just go down and grab one of those pigs and and say, okay, I need a pig heart. And then you fly that heart to University of Maryland where this guy was, and then they put it in. What would happen if, if you did that? It'd go real, real bad. Why? So, right, so let's go back two seconds on transplantation. And obviously I'm not a surgeon, but um, when you we- pretend, You pretend to be one on radio. Yeah, I stayed at Hollywood Express last night, so I'm golden, I'm good. <laughs> Um, and you have to be old enough to know that joke. So that's another whole discussion point there. I don't get that joke, but maybe you can fill me in on that. Yeah. That's an old commercial from Holiday Inn Express. You were an expert, but that's just, that's like old. So, but so, right. So we make the joke about Napa, right? But we've gotten really good at at things that are joints. Uh, and those are all metal. So we manufacture those things and then we go stick metal in. And the reason that metal works is, is that the body's immune system doesn't reject it doesn't see it, it it works and so we've gotten like amazingly good at joints right so we all know people that have had hip replaced or knee replaced in two or three weeks later they're getting around and you're like i thought you had you know they were limping couldn't walk and then all of a sudden they're almost normal right in three weeks and you're like holy toledo right so they gotten really really good at that but we know there's a huge issue with soft organs soft tissue so livers and kidneys and hearts lungs um that we have a lot of people that those fail. So we have kidney failure, heart failure, or liver failure. And we've not been very good at replacing those. So the reason is, is that those things have proteins all over their surface and carbohydrates all over their surface. So sugars and and protein um, that the body recognizes. And the immune system is pretty cool because, right, its primary job is self, non-self. So your immune system every day is out here looking around, all the time. And it sees something that says, oh, that's me. I'm not going to do anything. And then it sees something that's not me and it says, I'm going to kill it. And so that's true for, we think about that, right? With We're in the time of COVID. So we think about that with viruses. We think about it with bacteria. But we also think about that with tumors, right? So 
we have cells that could be tumors in us all the time. And the immune system finds them and says, hmm, that's a funny looking thing. I need to kill that off. So when I stick another organ in from another person or another animal, it has a whole bunch of protein on it that I don't recognize. And it says, "Mm -mm, that's not me. And so we've gotten pretty good at what we call tissue typing. So we're all familiar with blood types, right? So, um, you know, the A's and the B's and the positives and negatives and O's. And so um, we think about, right, that and we say, okay, we got to match the blood so that we can do a blood transfusion. Well, that's a pretty simple set of markers that we have. There's basically two sets of proteins we're looking for, the A and the ABO. And then, um, uh, I guess that's it. Oh, and RH factor, positive mm-hmm. and negative, right? There were two factors. It is getting old. I can remember that joke, but I can't remember the important stuff. So, right, so we've got these two sets of proteins we worry about, RH factor and then the ABO group. And so when we think, and that's because it's really, we're talking about a few cells. We're talking about white blood cells and red blood cells, but we're primarily talking about red blood cells because that's when we're doing a blood transfusion, we're trying to get red blood cells. So when we think about giving a tissue, like a kidney or a heart in this case, that thing doesn't have two proteins on the surface we're worried about. It's got hundreds of proteins on the surface that we're worried about. And so they've gotten very good at tissue typing. So it turns out it's not that many proteins that are important, or they've figured out what those proteins are. And they can match those proteins up and tissue type you. And then when they tissue type you, then they give you anti-rejection drugs to turn your cell cellular immunity off. So half of your one half of your adaptive immune system, we turn that off. And then you don't reject the organ. Your immune system doesn't attack the organ. So it's matching plus drugs, plus immunosuppression. And that combination allows us to transplant human organs or, or animal, you know, same animals, same species organs between species. And that works pretty good, and we can carry on with that. Now, when we talk about taking something from another species of primate, or which they did a lot and figured out that doesn't work very well, believe it or not. They said, ah, let's use pigs. And so the pig has got lots and lots and lots of protein on that surface that result in, if you look at some of the press stuff, right, we tried to do tissue transplants for 60 years and maybe much longer than that, you know, before people knew any of this stuff, they were trying to stick organs and stuff in or blood. And none of that worked because it, you know, animals were just so different that the immune system rejects them. So the science that's come along, and this is like magic stuff anymore, and we don't think it's magic. So you hang out around in a university and like, oh, yeah, we just use CRISPR. It's not a big deal. And I still am just amazed. You have to explain what a CRISPR is because to me it's like a crispy chicken nugget. And I don't know. That's probably not what you're talking about. Probably close enough. No, no, I don't think it's close (laughs) enough. No, so CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, is – a way to edit the genome. So it's the hot thing to do. And there's the one they use pretty routinely is called CRISPR-Cas9. And so don't ask me. This is a piece of equipment or a technique? This is a technique. It's actually an enzyme. Okay. So it's chemistry. So it's fancy, fancy chemistry. And we can expose genes or chromosomes in this case to the appropriate um, genetic code, and we can clip out pieces. 
And so don't ask. It's all magic to me. It's like truly magic how this works. Like I've had it explained to me a hundred times and I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. It's because you're doing all those tarot cards at night. No. (laughs) It's a good try. That's what pigments do, I'm pretty sure. On their Friday nights. No, we go to bed because we're tired because we get up early. Um, We're the least exciting people on the face of the earth. Um, But so literally they can go in and clip and that's and it's not super precise. But because of our sequencing, our ability to read the genetic code, they can figure out what they did clip. So they can go in and take little pieces of genes out. And so when you edit a gene. So remember, genes are made of nucleic acids, so ACTs and Gs. And the order that those in transcribes a protein or an amino acid, and then those amino acids are combined to form a structure, and that may be an enzyme or something else. But if I can go in and just take a little bit out, I may take out one amino acid or two or three or four amino acids, but that changes the shape of the protein. So one of the really important parts of molecular biology is this protein. It's not just the order of the amino acids in there, but those amino acids then confer a shape. So proteins are three-dimensional. And so when I take out a little bit, I drop a couple of amino acids, then the bonds don't end up in the right spot and I change how the protein folds and I change the shape. And often that makes it not biologically active anymore. So I don't understand exactly. I don't think they've published exactly which knockouts they did here. But what we've been able to do now is is go in no, we that's the royal we that's not me we so that's the royal we scientists have been able to go in and edit the genome and then put those cells back in an embryo cloning and grow a new pig with it okay so let me go through this one more time so they basically take the genetic code of a pig and then they, they remove the certain proteins that are going to be a problem for the human individual receiving the heart. And then they grow that from an embryo. That's right. Holy moly. Yeah. That's so, a little freaky. So it's a lot of technology, right? So it's this CRISPR-Cas9 bit that I can figure out how to edit the genome and figure out how to target, build the enzymes with clips exactly what I want. And then it's sequencing, so then I can know, did I clip the right thing? Um, And then it's this really cool cloning technology that's been developed so that I can then, so I basically take fibroblasts. That's the best tissue. So they go take fibroblasts, and they can do this out of an ear or literally anywhere, but they normally collect fibroblasts. Um, What's a fibroblast? So those are the cells... um, they're progenitor cells that make all the kind of connective tissue stuff. And so uh, these are, you know, they, they that's what they can take in here because there's cartilage and there's fibroblasts in the cartilage that make cartilage and other stuff, right? So we take that fibroblast and, um, and anybody who's like a real scientist that knows how to do this stuff is probably laughing right now. They're like, well, you're a clown. You know what I mean? What you're talking about. But we'll try to get this. I try to get it down to a level my brain can get my head around it. Got it. So you get these fibroblasts, and then they go edit them, pull the genetic material out of them, edit them. And then they take, and they're growing them in cell culture, so they're dividing. And then they take that little bit, and they put it in an, in a, um, uh, an egg, an oocyte. Okay. So they take an oocyte, and they pull the 
genetic material, the, the chromosomes out of the oocyte, and they stick the fibroblast chromosomes into the into the oocyte. So chromosomes are right; they're in the nucleus. They're basically just picking up one part of the cell and throwing it away and putting a new set in. It's a little bit like changing out a hip, except this time we're changing out the cell nucleus. And then they stimulate that oocyte to develop. So just like it was a fully fertilized oocyte. So an oocyte, when it's ovulated, it's only got half the genetic material. It's got one copy of all the chromosomes. When it's fertilized, the sperm provides the other set of the other half of the chromosomes. And so here, they're just putting both sets of chromosomes because they had a mature cell. So it doesn't have to be fertilized. They plunk duplicate copies of the chromosome in there and then stimulate the the what's now a, an embryo <laughs> because it's got both sets of chromosomes in it they stimulate that to divide just like it would normally divide and then they grow that and then they implant that back in a sow and a female at what point does the veterinarian get involved in this because i have a feeling that probably a human physician maybe can do everything up into the embryo point but then if they're going to grow another piglet you probably get a phone call like i need to grow a baby pig in a sow so that I can use his heart when he's born and fully mature. Not when he's born, but he's going to have to grow a little bit. But right, there's that seems to me like there's there's some veterinary work in that. So veterinarians have not been very heavily involved. Okay. I've done some work, uh, but really helping them figure out how to raise the pigs uh, Is there then, a special way you raise these pigs? No, but what um, – no, he just – they're raised in a sterile environment. How do you raise a pig in a sterile environment? Uh, that's a challenge. But let's There's go. no mud. There's no mud. No, no, no. There's no nothing. Um, but right, so we create these clones and then they cesarean derive the piglets. Cesarean so, meaning cesarean section. Cesarean okay. section, right, yeah. And so normally they're cesarean derived and colostrum deprived, so they don't get normal colostrum because they don't want anything from mom. So the huge risk with xenotransplantation, the unknown risk with xenotransplantation is that we get some pathogen <laughs> that we don't know about, a pig pathogen, and we infect humans with it because we stuck the organ in an immunocompromised patient. Sure. So... I think where veterinarians have been pretty heavily involved is in that bit of how do we assess the disease risk in um, the source material. So both the pig that's the source of the fibroblast and mom, the surrogate mother. Uh, and so how do we build a system to know that those pigs are not infected with pathogens? Uh, and some of those are pig pathogens and some of those are human pathogens. And so it's often a pretty interesting collaboration between infectious disease specialists, ID docs, and uh, somebody like me. Like, okay, what do we need to think about? Where's that at? How might we test for that? Um, and then just sign us some practical stuff. Like how do we get these pigs out and how do we get them started and how do we get them raised? And they don't have colostrum, which pigs need. So they're immunocompromised from the word go. Um you know, how, how warm you need to come in. It's all these little tricks and stuff we spend some time working with people on. So you're um, really good at making little pig nurseries. Yeah, and it's interesting. So, uh, you know, these are obviously human docs that are doing this where transplant surgeons are doing it. And transplant surgeons are brilliant immunologists. And so um, 
you know, they're good at sewing stuff together, but they're, they're really, their specialty is actually immunology, understanding all this tissue matching and which things need to be knocked out and which ones need to be left in. And so, right, they run out of some kind of practical stuff that we've learned over the years, either doing research or just raising pigs. So, you know, there's practical stuff like how do we do C-sections to improve fetal survival or piglet survival, uh, neonate survival. So, and there's tricks to that, right? None of that is uh, particularly complicated, but, you know, you got to kind of, you know, it's passed down and it's not not done all the time. So you pass some of those tricks along. Um and then it's just a lot of uh, understanding uh, what are they trying to do next and a lot of disease risk mitigation. I think that's where veterinarians have been involved is how do we think about this um, risk of zoonotic disease? Did you ever think when you were in vet school, did you know you wanted to be a pig vet when you were in vet school? Yeah, I just thought I knew I wanted to live in Illinois and there's a lot of pigs and so that that'd probably work. You wanted to live in Illinois, and there's a lot of pigs, so that that was yeah. The so right, connection. if you were gonna, if I was gonna live in California, I'd have been a dairy veterinarian, right? And so you, you you know, right, and the feedlot industry went away from Illinois, and you could kind of see that happening uh, when I graduated, and so we did a lot of that when I first graduated, but uh, you knew that wasn't a long term path. I I actually thought when I graduated, you know, I was going to be, don't laugh at this, James Harriet, but you know, that's what the pig veterinarians in the mid nineties were just general practitioners. And so, um, I had no idea all this craziness would happen. Yeah. I was thinking, did you ever think when you were in vet school, you would ever be involved in anybody needing your expertise to raise pigs potentially for, um, human transplant? Never crossed my mind. How did that, did you just get a phone call one day? I'm just curious Uh, about that. Actually, I did just get a phone call out of the blue one day. <laughs> Hi, uh, can you help me grow some pigs for Yeah, so it, it was a group that was here in the Midwest, and uh, they'd called another university that didn't have any pig people. So they picked up the phone and called us and said, called me and said, hey, we see you're a pig guy. We got this question. And you're like, oh, okay. And so you started uh, working through some some things and helping them sort some of that stuff out. And, you know, the next thing you know, it's, uh, what was that, five or six or seven years ago? It was quite a while ago. Um, and that, that they're using a different process than that particular group is using a different process than what's come along. But that's one of the advantages, you know, being in a university. So uh, on campus here, we raise a lot of colostrum-deprived pigs or baby, baby pigs for, that's a fairly common thing that gets done for research. And so... Uh, people on campus have kind of figured out the tricks. And so, you know, you talk to, oh, what are we doing and how does that work? And these biomedical research pigs. So cesarean-derived colostrum-deprived pigs are not that uncommon, and colostrum-deprived pigs are really not that uncommon. Uh, Ryan Dilger's group does a lot of work using baby pigs as a model for um, human milk replacer and development. So cognitive development, the iron and protein, and how do they how do they build human milk replacer formula um, to be an effective way, right, to make sure that children are growing properly. And so pigs have been a model. So guess what you need? You need a lot of little pigs that um, can be fed milk replacer and not raised on mom. So when you do that, they've figured it out. It's not that hard. So you start to f- talk to people, adapt um ideas figure out what you need for the specific situation which is um 
no, even 10 years ago, I thought I was going to worry about that kind of stuff, right? I was worried about raising pigs and how do we put pigs on the rail and everything else. Put, put pigs on a rail? Uh, harvest them. Oh, my gosh. I can't keep up with you sometimes. Um, what was that other one? Put a bucket on a truck? My friend was telling me, and I was like, what is put a bucket on a truck? Something no about idea. putting a thing on a tractor. Put the bucket on the tractor. Like yeah, the on scooper the thing. Yeah, on the front, yeah. Yeah, she was getting it stuck and was yelling profanities and i was like what's going on and she's like, you need friends that don't you get mad <laughs> no i like the friends that curse but no so where i want to go with that is so you you know um i didn't like you when you were my professor because you were a pig vet and you believed in growing pigs for human consumption and now i've gotten to know you and i realize you're a nice human being but we can't have this. Record. Make sure we save that piece right there. <laughs> that's Ashley important. My tech said, "Doctor Lowe is a great human." Yeah, yeah we, that's that's that's, that's priceless that. audio on that one. Um, but you know, there's some really interesting bioethics about these topics, and we could talk a long time about that. But do you have any ethical concerns about any of the future of using animals to grow organs for people. I think all these things have the potential for abuse. And and I think it's and, and if you look at the people in this field, they are the, the people doing this work are brilliant. I mean these aren't um Joe Schmuckatelli, right? I mean, this is... Uh, I hope somebody isn't named Joe Schmuckatelli out there. That's another long story we don't have time for. Okay. But um, it is a slippery ethical slope in that when you start genetically engineering anything, why are we doing it and what are we doing it for? And I think, right, the pig that um, they used for this heart transplant wasn't just a knockout pig. And what is a knockout pig? So that's where we take genes out. This is using this CRISPR to take out genes. This was actually, and that's really, really common. So the research model is knockout mice. So we know a lot about how physiology works because they knock out individual genes on mice. And then that's a way to look at it, not just in a cell, but in the whole animal. So that's a super powerful research tool. It's been around quite a while. And so we now, in Randy Prather's group at the University of Missouri, really pioneered the ability to create knockout pigs. And so they have knocked out uh, a particular gene in pigs called CD163 that actually confers resistance to a really important pig disease. So we can create a pig that is genetically resistant to PERS. So that sounds fantastic, right? Yeah. Um, but here are the consequences of this stuff. You don't know what else CD163 does. It clearly is not just a receptor for an individual virus. It must have some other functions. Um, and so we have to proceed cautiously in any of these things. So those pigs are not what I, you know, is not a um, transgenic animal. It's a knockout animal. And interestingly, there are some animals that don't have that receptor with natural selection, right? It just it doesn't happen. Now it's exceedingly rare. But so when you're doing knockouts, you're really doing things that are kind of, in that case, you're doing things that occur naturally in nature at a much higher rate, right? It's just a different form of selection. But I think we have to think in, in 
please, Randy's group and uh, Genis, which owns the commercial rights to that, have not released the, released the pigs. They're doing a tremendous amount of research trying to understand what are the concept, what are the other consequences, what are the knock-on effects, right, of doing this. Does it? It, it does appear to confer resistance, and they're trying to fine-tune which bit they're going to clip and how little can they do. But they're also saying, okay, what else happens when we do that? And does that lead to something we haven't thought of yet? And I think those are really the big concerns. And then in this pig, uh, they've inserted, I think, five or six human genes. So they engineered some genes. Uh, you know, we can do that. Again, this is magic. I don't know how we do this, but you can just order genes today. You need a little bit. You Go need, on Amazon. It's, get your you genes. Know, you, you laugh. It's not Amazon, but it's almost that easy. If you need to order a gene block, which is just a chunk of genetic material, like literally you type the code in. You say, I want this order of ACTs and Gs, which you can find. I mean, these things are like, if you know what you're doing, you're like, oh, I need this and I need that. You can type it in and they send it to you. Three or is four it days like later. a little thread? Like, how does it come to you? Does it come, tell me it, it comes it, in it like a, little a bottle. Tiffany box or something. No, no, no. It comes in a little bottle. Bottle. It's like an itty bitty little vial. Oh, okay. And it's liquid? Uh, it's dry. Oh, it's okay. lyophilized. You have to rehydrate it. Lavalized? Lyophilized. Freeze dried. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's just a little bit of protein. Okay. A little bit of RNA or DNA in the tube. Got it. And it's like, you know, so small an amount you can't imagine. But think about that. I need a gene and I need to use it for scientific investigation. And if I know the sequence, which is, I don't want to say that's straightforward today, but that's, that's old science today. We can crank out the sequence pretty fast. I can order that and three days later. It's on my doorstep, and it cost me like $11. Wow. This is not like I'm investing thousands, right? So this science of engineering a bit of genetic material is super cheap and super easy today. I, I think it's super complicated, but for the end user, it's not hard. And so that means they can insert these genes. And, you know, it used to be the first commercially available genetically engineered thing was, was corn, and they stuck a um, – uh, bacillus gene into it, BT. And so they just stuck the gene into it and they literally shotgunned it in there. They threw it, they literally, it was some physical, I mean, it was just like some imprecise, like billions of cells to get two that took, you know, one of those kind of things. Right. Super imprecise. And today it's like, now we got it. We'll just, it's a different form of CRISPR. They used to stick this stuff in. It's precise. Oh, I want it here. Yeah, I want it there. Great. No problem. And so I think all that is super interesting, super exciting, and fraught with a lot of ethical issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other issue is we think about um, xenotransplantation. It's this risk of zoonotic disease. So there's a huge number of viral genes that have been, been incorporated into the human genome. And I saw something this week. There's a preprint article that susceptibility to COVID may be related to the presence or absence of a particular form of one of these retroviruses. Wow. In the human genome. So it sits there all the time. But if you happen to have that copy of this retrovirus and you're exposed to COVID, it causes another expression. Boom, boom, boom. I didn't read all the details. But 
So that's not a human gene thing. It's a retrovirus, which is an integrated virus, but it's a viral origin protein that's integrated into our genome. So that's interesting. Well, we know those have happened in every species, including pigs. And so nobody's done this on mass scale. What's the risk? These are the conversations we have. What's the risk that there's a retrovirus incorporated into a pig genome that's infectious to humans? That we just don't know about yet or since we because haven't Because it looks before. like a normal genome. Do you think that we're going to see more of this happen? More pig to human transplant? There's a huge amount of work going in this area because the need is mind-boggling. The number of, and, and I don't remember the numbers, but it's just um, staggering the number of people that die on the heart transplant waiting list, the number of people right. that die on the kidney transplant waiting list, liver transplants. And so that's the people chasing this are really doing this for all the right reasons. They're saying, listen, we have all these people die that we have no hope of finding out of human organs for a little match. Could we engineer pig organs for this individual person? Right. And, and I think you, if you talk to some people in that field, their, their holy grail is, is that uh, Ashley needs a kidney. They would take your cell surface marker profile and they go stick that in a pig. Would you grow that pig for me? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but they would go engineer that pig, gestate the sow. And 10 months later, they'd have an organ to transplant. Is that how long it would take? 10 months? Yeah, because the gestation's four months. And then the how large does Five, it be? Uh, you know, it needs to kind of be your size. So another- Five to six, five, six, months, six months after that, right, yeah. So um, those, are, right? So there's all these like, like pie in the sky, like could we do that? And there's some stuff now they're saying, Right, you see this, uh, the ability to do gene editing in live people, right? So there's, the, oh, could we do knockouts? I mean, this is a kind of an expanding field, but you can see the need and the human suffering that occurs. And so, yes, there's going to be a lot of effort in here. And from everything I've seen, there's a tremendous amount of concern on the same side of let's not make it worse, like first new no harm. Um, but it's super exciting. I wish I understood it better. Um, I think these kinds of things will have a big impact on medicine. Um, and, you know, I think you'll also see them trickle down and have some impact on veterinary medicine. Absolutely. And we were talking before we started recording about how excited I get and all the anesthesiologists in the veterinary community get about transplant anesthesia. And that's not something we do very frequently in veterinary medicine, right? There's some people doing kidney transplants in cats, but, um, that would be super exciting to do. And, um, I have to give a shout out to all the anesthesiologists, because surgeons always get the credit and the pig vets. But the team of the anesthesia team who, who helped make this possible, I know they did a great job. So go team anesthesia, whoever you are. I love you surgeons too. You, you know, the only reason we pay anesthesiologists, right? <laughs> to wake us up. <laughs> That's right. They don't it's, pay. You don't pay them to put you to sleep. No, it's brainstem death, but it's got to be reversible brainstem death. Yes. Yeah, right? That's it's right. You got to wake up when you're done. Word, yeah. yeah. They also, people like when, you know, they don't feel pain. That's our other magic trick. Yeah. I think the, where this will have huge implications in veterinary medicine is probably not transplants, but it's this ability to knock out 
genetic diseases. And so if we think about, right, particularly companion animals, the number of things and in, in talk about being out over your skis, I'm closer to talk about transplants than I am dog medicine, but right. Think about the number of diseases we deal with. Most of those things are genetic. Yep. Um, and that's because, right, dog breeds are inbred by definition. That's how you got that breed. I mean, it's a narrow genetic base, and so you amplified all the genetic defects. And we do the same thing in commercial production animals, right? But we have a lot of pressure on removing genetic defects because that's bad. And so there's a, a, there's a systematic breeding scheme to remove genetic defects, even though the populations are inbred. A breed, by definition, is inbred. It's not an outcross. And so... There's not that systematic scheme in pets, particularly dogs, right? We particularly think all those little AB dogs, you know, all the goofy respiratory crap and everything else they have, right? So I think as we start to see the ability to do this, I think we'll see that probably be the first implication of veterinary medicine. A, there's money to do it. None of this is going to be cheap. Um, B, there's a lot of suffering in, in pets because of genetic issues, right? Some you know, less than ideal breeding situations across is made. Um, and so you can eliminate some of that stuff. And the challenges are, is the breeding stable? Uh, is the gene mutation, when you knock it out, is it stable? Does it pass the next generation, et cetera? But th they'll work those pieces out. Um, there'll be a lot of work in the commercial livestock space. Um, just think about the ability to remove disease pressure and the amount of, you know, if we go look at all the real welfare issues in food animal, it's all disease. I mean, those are the real concerns, right? If we look at just, if we kind of view death as bad, bad welfare, that's one of our, you know, un, un, untimed, uncontrolled death is bad welfare suffering. And disease is the biggest contributor, a huge contributor to that. So, okay, maybe there's some things there. There's some real questions about if consumers are going to accept knockout pigs or knockout cattle or knockout sheep. Um, but there's tremendous opportunities to improve efficiency of animal agriculture, which is directly related to carbon, carbon footprint. So there's a carbon footprint impact and a disease and suffering thing, right? So things we don't think about, quote, quote, profitability, but certainly um, – these kind of knock-on effects that are going to be more important as we as we go forward. All right. Well, we should wrap it up because you probably got to go jump in your truck, look at pigs, or I don't know what are you doing. This I'm going to go edit some genes. <laughs> no, 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 that's not true. I do need to edit a paper, but I don't think that's the same. I mean, it's editing letters, but it's more than ACT and G, so I think it's different. <laughs> I wonder what's more painful. Um, I'm going to go next door and play with vaporizers. I think so. Um, It'll be a good afternoon for all. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we will see you again next time on The Round Barn. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening. And we'd love to hear from you, too. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Round Barn one We may even share your comments on our next show. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing, we also offer a wide range of learning opportunities for folks who work with livestock and veterinarians too. You can learn more at online.vetmed.illinois.edu. See you soon.